Today, I'm going to give a review of the Roman Empire in late antiquity, a political and military history by Hugh Elton, first published in 2018. So it's relatively fresh off the presses, uh, in my opinion. It's 2021 right now. Hugh Elton writes that the major thing that sets his book apart from others is that he is showing what it was like to run the Roman Empire from the perspective of the emperor. The book describes how the late Roman Empire, though not yet called Byzantine, was controlled fiscally, politically, militarily, and religiously, and provides an overview of the military situation between Rome and the various peoples living in the empire and on its periphery. If you are interested in these aspects of history, then you don't need to listen to my review. This book is already required reading for students of late antiquity and some universities. I'm not a historian that is an expert in or interested in all the topics covered by this book. What I'm doing is reviewing this book as a haplogroup researcher interested in learning about historical events that may have impacted the survival or migration of male lineages in the areas relevant to the late Roman Empire. So all land bordering the Mediterranean, East and West, Italy and the African coast, France, Central Europe, the Balkans, Greece, the Black Sea, Anatolia, Armenia and Syria and other areas on the periphery. I skimmed the parts of the book focusing on Christianity, about the organization, politics and dogma of the early Christian church because it was not relevant for my mainline research goals and I found it confusing to keep up with all the individuals and the many changing dogmas. This book provided useful mainline demographics information in several ways. Accounts of military expeditions, recruitment and battle outcomes, the personal backgrounds of emperors and other high-ranking generals and administrators, and information about the foundations and peopling of cities. I'll provide an example of each type of information and how it helped shape my understandings of the ancient history of the Balkans, a region of interest for those in my haplogroup, J2BL283. But first, a little about the author. Hugh Elton, BA, Sheffield, Doctor Philosophy, Oxford. Professor Elton spe specializes in Roman and late Roman political and military history and the regions of Cilicia in, and Isauria in southern Turkey. Uh, Isauria is, is uh, roughly corresponds to the modern Konya province, and it's north of Cilicia. He has participated in a number of archaeological projects, most recently running a multi-period interdisciplinary survey in the Gürksu Valley near Alahan, and providing advice about best practice for the archaeology of the BTC pipeline. Professor Elton has taught in the Ancient Greek and Roman Studies program since 2006. His teaching has included courses on the Trojan War, the history of the Roman world, including a number of upper year courses focusing on the late Roman Empire in the East, ancient warfare, Isauria, Anglo-Saxon England, Greek and Latin. He's a professor at the Trent University in Ontario, Canada. Now some examples of interesting things that I learned. According to Hugh's summary, Slavs at that time were not skilled at siege warfare. Um, the time I'm talking about is uh, the year 500, after, after around 500, early 500s. Slavs at that time were not skilled at siege warfare, 
and generally lack the political organization, equipment, training, and logistics skills to seriously challenge a Roman field army. Usually they conducted raids. However, in 550, the city of Topirus in the Thracian province of Rhodope fell to the Slavs. Now I'll quote the passage of Procopius, Wars, 7, 38, 15 to 18, that is cited in the book on page 321. The inhabitants of the city, deprived of the support of the soldiers, were at a great loss and began to defend themselves against the attackers according to the present circumstances. First, heating fiercely oil and pitch, they poured it on the besiegers, and all of them hurling stones against them, came close to repulsing the danger. But then the barbarians, having driven them back from the parapets by a multitude of arrows and having placed ladders against the wall, took the city by storm. They killed all 15,000 men straight away, plundered all the wealth, and enslaved all the women and children. Procopius. If his account is correct, one could reasonably conclude that many male lines of Topirus, Rhodope, were extinguished or depleted on that day. The male children who survived the siege and were subsequently enslaved may have later been sold to whoever was part of the Slavs trading network. I don't know where these exact Slavs had been living and, and where they went after the siege. Maybe nobody knows for certain, but historians may have educated guesses. It's, it is conceivable that some of the offspring may be living today as Slavs from neighboring or possibly even further away regions. So we've learned one possible vector of migration from Rhodope, Thrace in 550 to nearby regions, perhaps including an introgression into local Slavic populations. Another thing that I really appreciated about this book was that there is biographical information, very small amount, uh, that about most of the important figures that were either emperors themselves, people in their retinue, um, generals, high-ranking officials in the army or administration. It says where they were from, where they were born, uh, what language they spoke. It's really useful for uh, male line origins, just to get an idea of where were all these important people during the later Roman Empire, where were they from? They were from many different areas. Uh, so let's turn to Justinian um, on page 257. Justinian was Justin's nephew, born Flavius Petrus Sabatius Justinianus, a Latin speaker from the village of Tauresium in the territory of Scupi in the province of Dardania. Following his uncle, he came to Constantinople where he served first as a scholarius and then as a candidatus. He was made patrician in 518, magister militum praesentalis in 520 and consul in 521. However, unlike Justin, he had not led troops into battle. The 45-year-old Justinian had no children of his own, though he made great use of relatives throughout his reign as commanders. 
So Justinian's migration to Constantinople is indicative of a general trend in migration to Constantinople from provincial areas for economic reasons. The geographic origin of Justinian and his many promoted relatives is useful to know because he was the third longest reigning emperor having ruled for 38 years. He and his relatives, many of which he put in prime government positions, may have traveled all over the empire during this period. On Google Maps, I found that Taurisium brings me to Teor in North Macedonia. It is 20 kilometers southeast of Skopje. Wikipedia cites Vladimir Petrovich's Balkanica. The Dardanians had remained independent after the Roman conquest of Macedonia because they had supported the Romans, hoping to enlarge their territory in this way, end quote. Um, my haplogroup is one of the major surviving haplogroups of the Western Balkans. So learning that Dardanians from originally North Macedonia had been doing relatively well at the start of the Roman period and that one of them later became emperor means one or more means one more potential vector to consider when examining the more widely geographically distributed lineages of my haplogroup that nonetheless appear to have originated from the Western Balkans. Uh, another interesting fact not mentioned in the book at hand that I only read about on Wikipedia cites Stipchevic 1989, his book on Illyrians, that even prior to the Roman Empire, the Dardani appear to have had some good fortune after the Celts attacked and weakened their neighbors, the Macedonians and Paeonians. So this is useful information about where the equivalent of a dynasty came from during the reign of Justinian, 527 to 565. Lots of people from his village had high rank and were moving all over the empire in various capacities. So there's a that's a male line demographic event. Another interesting fact regarding male lines is that in 614, when the Persian, Persians captured Jerusalem, supposedly 35,000 Romans were deported to Babylon along with the fragments of the true cross. 66,509, uh, according to the monk Antiochus Strategius, who was a witness uh, and was marched to Babylon before he escaped, 66,509 Romans were killed when the, the city fell and 35,000 were deported to Babylon. So that's interesting. I don't know how many of them later came back, but the in this book, I learned that the Persians really liked to deport people to Persia and Babylon. Thirteen years after that, in 627, Heraclius invaded Persia and was successful, defeated them. Uh, so maybe some of those Romans captives were allowed to go back to Rome at that point. I want to talk a little about where the armies were based because it's important for understanding where a lot of men who maybe were not originally from that area recruited somewhere else were spending significant amount of time in these regions. Uh, at the end of the fifth century, there was an Eastern army at Antioch an Illyrian army at Thessalonica, a Thracian army at Marcianopolis, 
which is the modern city of Devnia on eastern coast of Bulgaria. They were supported by an imperial army at Constantinople. And later there was an army in the east in Theodosiopolis in Erzurum. After the reconquest of parts of Western Europe, field armies were based in Cartago Nova, Ravenna, that's Cartagena, Spain, Ravenna, Italy, and Carthage. Where did all these guys serving in these armies come from? On page 311, there's some interesting information about recruiting and organization. In the second paragraph, four regions are mentioned by Hugh Elton. Isauria, Illyricum, Thrace, and Armenia are some of the chief recruiting grounds for Roman military. The Roman Empire in late antiquity has a lot of details that are relevant, directly relevant to those interested in male line origins and migrations in the Roman Empire and its periphery during the period of late antiquity. But we who are interested in male line origins derive more from this work than just the directly relevant migration facts. The way Elton presents the historical events and development of the organization and functioning of the late Roman Empire is intrinsically interesting and readable, and I believe contributes to building or enhancing one's historical framework. I think that the greater we understand ancient historical events and human undertakings in general, the better position we are in to consider possible and more or less likely migration scenarios that may have transpired at times and places where less is definitively known. I learned some valuable insight into how the Western Empire declined and fell. We normally, you might think, oh, they fell because they were attacked and defeated, but it's a more complicated than that. Uh, what, during the Punic Wars, the second Punic War, where the Carthaginians under Hannibal defeated the Romans time and time again, uh, devastating losses, wiping out entire legions, they, rec they recovered from that. Uh, when, when, because they just lost armies and they didn't lose the bulk of the area where they get money from and where they recruit men from, but something happened when in, in the late Roman Empire when the Western Roman Empire lost Africa pretty much without a fight to the Vandals because they made a political bad decision and did not seriously confront the Vandals. And the Vandals came in, took Africa, which was the breadbasket. So this was one of the crippling blows to the Western Roman Empire. And uh, similarly, similar kind of thing happened in the East when the uh, Persians took took Egypt right before the Romans actually defeated the Persians conclusively. Right before they defeated them in the 600s, they had they were on the winning side and they took Egypt and Syria uh, and and this was the 
maybe by area it was only a third of the of the empire but it was the most the richest part of the empire so this was financially devastating for them and the book ends with the ascendancy of the various Saracens, which then they start to use the term Arab in the book, at least to describe them, the, the ascendancy of Arab tribes united under Islam. Uh, Mauritius, emperor in the early 600s, wrote a book called Strategicon that contained his advice for future Roman emperors regarding practical military matters. There was a chapter on the approaches appropriate for four groups of enemies, explaining that not all people fight in one formation or in the same way, so that it is not possible to treat them all in the same way. The four short essays on how to fight the Persians, Slavs and Anti, Huns and other Scythians, and Western barbarians contain many stereotypes but they also fit well the attitudes and practices described by contemporaries. The named enemies provide a sense of whom the Romans saw as important militarily, saying nothing about the Caucasus, Africa, or the Saracens. So the Romans didn't consider the Saracens to be a particular military threat because they lacked political unity, organization, Train, military training, equipment, and, and they were living in areas that were not very productive. There aren't a lot of reliable firsthand written sources that document the early battles between the Arabs and Persians and Romans, but they gained the upper hand. They were motivated through Islam and Maybe they learned some lessons from the organizational techniques and siege warfare kind of techniques. Maybe they learned these lessons from their Roman and Persian neighbors who had been perfecting these strategies and techniques for centuries. One thing that Elton emphasizes throughout the book is that while the Romans lose chunks of their empire at different times, starting in the West, most notably, and then getting chipped away in the East by their neighbors. The Roman army is not, is never invalidated as a force that cannot win battles. It is winning battles this entire time. It's not winning every battle. It's not winning every battle, but it's winning a lot of battles. They even, as late as the 600s, defeated conclusively the Persians, brought them to a civil war with competing factions. So one thing related to this is that the, the tactics and organization and equipment of the Roman Empire didn't, their military, it evolved over, over the late antiquity, but there was no drastic 
change at any given time. It was all gradual development. And this is what happens when what you're doing is a winning strategy. So I, to paraphrase in my own words, maybe you could say that the, the remnants of the Roman Empire that ended up ruling a rump state in Byzantium and, and parts of the Balkans, they, they, were playing, they were playing very well a hand that they were given. It's like in, in risk, if you start to have a lot of enemies all around you, there's no way that you can win no matter what. Um, these, these groups that came in and took different chunks of their empire, it was never just one group that took everything and then became the superpower. It was just lots of different splinter groups that never were able to unify everything. They just control a small chunk. It's just, this is how the Europe and Middle East changed over time. Uh, finance has to, uh, economics has to do with this too. What can you support? Even after the Romans, this is from Elton's book uh, that I learned, even after the Romans with their general Belisarius, who was very, very skilled, they reconquered Africa and Italy and Sardinia and Sicily. And I don't know if he actually reconquered part of Spain as well, but they ended up reconquering part of that after having lost all of that. After they reconquered it all, it, they, it was not the sum of its parts that it had been before. It, Africa was not as productive as it was before. This area that just historically provided a lot of money and, and, and grain without having to be protected this would that was why it was so valuable to the romans so they took it back and they didn't realize that it wasn't as productive as it had once been so this is why in the end they couldn't hold on to all these places that they conquered again because they just weren't as productive as they were before and then they just had to defend themselves over a greater area i hope you enjoyed my first book review and I plan to do more in the future. I have a backlog of several books I read over the last year, year and a half that I was meaning to do some kind of review about. Maybe I'll combine a few of them into one podcast. Stay tuned. Some of the books are about Etruscans, the Roman legions, and Iron Age Mediterranean trade. Actually, the book about the Iron Age Mediterranean it's called The Open Sea, The Economic Life of the Ancient Mediterranean World from the Iron Age to the Rise of Rome. This book is uh, very interesting. And this author uses a lot of whatever scientific, uh, scientific climatological data that impacts economics because it impacts agriculture. He, he talks about using this kind of data, which is a growing field, uh, fusing this with, with studies of history. And also he talks a lot about uh, the history of economics because how can you understand politics if you don't understand the economics that underlie whether or not one group is able to make a lot of 
weapons and boats and things that they need in order to conquer another group. So that, that book was really interesting to read, and I'm going to review that in the future.